Thank you, worship team. You can have a seat. Thank you for joining us and being here this morning. I'm very glad that you're able to join us and celebrate with us this morning. Welcome to Mount Helena Community Church. If you're a guest, if you're joining us online, we're grateful to have you join us this morning. We're in a series called Time Out. We're actually on part six, and you may be thinking, haven't we said it all? (laughs) How long does this time out go on? I, quite honestly, could take a couple more Sundays if JR gave them to me, but I don't have a couple more Sundays. So this morning, rather than reviewing the series, I want to jump in to what I have for you, what I feel like God has given us this morning as a body. I want to clarify Sabbath, but I also want to expand upon that rest of God called Sabbath. And after that, I want us to take a look in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16 and learn a portion of scripture from David's life. But this morning, I want us to start out in a different book. In book one of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, how about that? Believe it or not, J.R. Tolkien is describing... Sabbath. There's a Sabbath experience that he writes of in the Fellowship of the Ring. There, Tolkien's describing a time of rest and a time of healing in the house of Elrond in Rivendell. The hobbits, along with Strider, their guide, have made a dangerous, almost fatal journey to this place, and they have so much more in front of them. But Tolkien picks up writing and says, For a while the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the pearls that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. Wow. Did you realize in his writing, that's a description, a moment of their, of their Sabbath, of the hobbits celebrating Sabbath. The future Good or ill was not forgotten, but ceased to have power over the present. Well said. Well said to, according to Tolkien, the Sabbath, this period that he's writing about, is a period of remembrance. It's a period of remembering, but it's also a time of observance and reflecting on what's ahead. But according to Tolkien, Sabbath is a disarming power that's actually meant to empower us in the present. It's meant to be an influence over all the other days of the week. It's meant to be an influence over all the other days of the week. Sabbath is this. Sabbath is ceasing from that which is necessary. It's to stop doing what you ought to do. It's a shirking 
or a shucking of the have-tos in order to capture the get-tos. Most often, we let six days of the week tell us what we're going to do on the seventh day of the week, don't we? Even sitting here on a Sunday morning, which is common to us as the Sabbath day, we're sitting here thinking oftentimes, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm confident I'm not the only person who sits here on a Sunday and sometimes makes a side list to the side of what I need to get done this afternoon because tomorrow's Monday morning and I can't wait till then. I got to get this done now. Or the other six days are knocking, but that's not what God intends. Mark Buchanan, the author of the book JR's highly recommended to each of us, The Rest of God, proposes that if there is such a thing as the Sabbath's golden rule, then it has to be this, to cease from that which is necessary, to stop doing the things that you ought to do, that you have to do, that you and I should do, just for one day a week just for one day. Sabbath is one day. It's meant to be a reprieve from what we ought to do. I understand that for some of us, examples can explain it best and make it more clear. And it's that time of year again. And you may be sitting here, if you're like my friend Marv, you may be sitting here thinking the question, so Jason, tell me, can I chop wood this afternoon? Or not. And I have some questions for you. Well, is it necessary? Is it something I must do? Do I feel obligated to do it? Then it smells like an ought to. Then it smells like something you ought to do. Maybe you're one of those sick souls who actually feels the exhilaration of chopping wood. It's a make-you-feel-alive kind of feeling, and you actually come to life. Maybe more of us can relate to cutting grass. Is it something you have to do? Does it feel like drudgery or something that's daunting, or is it something that's freeing? Again, cutting grass, isn't that something that can be so different for people? Some people, it's a great time to think and to process and to connect, to filter, and to come out of the process more alive. For some people, it's watering plants or watering the garden. It can be the same task. But what does it leave us feeling like? God's intended rest for us is not just a ceasing from that which is necessary, but it's also embracing those things that give us life. That don't just give us life, but give us life more abundantly. We need to know not just what to avoid in types of work, but what do we need to pursue? How do we spend our time? What do I do with Sabbath and with rest? Jesus broke all sorts of man-made rules on the Sabbath, didn't he? He broke all sorts of man-made rules to heal 
to feed the hungry, to clothe, to clarify that it actually is okay to rescue fallen creatures who've fallen into ditches and into wells. He took that day to clarify that it's okay to lead fallen down thirsty creatures to water on the Sabbath, on a day of rest. He actually especially favored that day of the week. Some of his best teachings, some of his great miracles oftentimes happened on what was celebrated by the Jews as the Sabbath day and was forbidden or was off limits. The day in which there was the most rules to try and keep or to attain. But he especially favored that day of the week for taking back whatever had been stolen by sickness, by great loss, by accident, by misfortune, by what the enemy or what the devil had stolen or taken away. And he majored in giving them back on that day. That is sobering in itself, isn't it? It's not just a day of being idle of letting the mind go numb, of not engaging others, spending time with others, but Jesus majored in engaging people on the Sabbath day. What a better day of the week than Sabbath to confront the devil, to trounce the devil, to trump death, to reverse sickness, to heal injury, to treat someone extra special that day. In my own life, the summer, June 20th, on Father's Day, we spent our last day with my father-in-law. For some people, that would wreck all Father's Days in the future and how that day is remembered or celebrated. But in our family, it's actually greatly treasured. We thought to ourselves, what an incredible day for dad to spend his last Father's Day, his last day with us, and to enter the kingdom of heaven on Father's Day and to spend eternity with his father. And so I have those thoughts. What a better day as Father's Day comes around this next year and the year after that and the year after that. It'll never be the same. But I could choose to think of the loss we experienced or the gain that was always before him after his confession of Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And what an incredibly intimate day. What a rest to enter, to depart here, and to enter abundant life on that day. If not work, if not obligations, if not productivity, then what do we pursue? That leads me to my second point. That question leads me to the second half of what Buchanan suggests is the Sabbath's golden rule. And that's to embrace that which gives life, abundant life. It was Jesus who said, I'm pursuing this. I came for this purpose. I came 
that they may have life and have it more abundantly. In ways that man took away what Sabbath was, Jesus enriched Sabbath. He enriched he enriched rest and brought abundant life even to the day of rest. But students who have studied and looked at Sabbath don't have to look very deep to realize in the beginning, back in Exodus, even further than that, in Genesis, that scripture in Exodus 20 verse 8 The fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is oftentimes, by the way, the most often forgotten commandment, isn't it? God himself is making the connection to that commandment that goes all the way back to Genesis in the beginning. That shows the example that God gave us. Knowing that we're created beings who are created in him. He himself didn't actually need rest just after six days of creation, but he knew that we would. After all the creating that we had done and the work and the productivity that we had accomplished, God knew we would still need recreated. We would need replenished and refreshed, re-strengthened. And so God set the example. By example, He took rest to show us what we would need. God knows best that we need to stop creating, stop working, stop scratching off the list of ought to's and need to's, and to be recreated, to be refreshed, to be re-strengthened. Again, what category does wood chopping or antique shopping or grass cutting or cookie baking, hunting the elusive bull elk, or writing an enduring message to a friend fit with you? How does it fit with you? Is it something that you have to create or is it something that recreates you? God is asking us to take one day a week to choose the recreative things, the things that recreate in us, that bring us life and life more abundantly. To be honest, I'm sure I have to be near the top of the list of those of us in the room who often and frequently break Sabbath, and it wears on me. I, there were several times in this last year after we bought our house, I spent every moment that I could... <laughs> getting my hands on the projects that needed done in the house so we could move in and finishing service. I would go grab lunch and beat feet there and give the rest of my day into the wee hours of the night. And after six months of that, I was wondering what is left of myself. (laughs) It had greatly worn me down. But if we're to choose to return to God's restful desires for us. More rules are not what God intends for us. More rules are not going to help us. No one has ever been better than Jesus at summing up a long list of rules. Even 10 in the beginning 
and summing them up just down to one. Because of the simplicity and the versatility of his one command, all the others could be fulfilled. Jesus' so-called golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do unto you, was just that, simplicity and versatility. Buchanan suggests then that Sabbath's golden rule is this, to cease from what is necessary and embrace that which gives you life. And then it's up to you. Do what you want that gives you life. I want us to take a moment, as I said earlier, to look in 2 Samuel. You can turn there with me now. In 2 Samuel, we're going to pick up in chapter 15. It's actually pretty late in David's reign, in his rule. And in his kingship, there have been many wins. They have, they have subdued Israel's enemies and they've expanded the borders of Israel. He's led them in amassing great wealth and building a beautiful, immaculate palace. They've brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and what a win. And yet in his lifetime, there's been a number of losses. He's married to one of his best friend's wives who he had him murdered after he came back from the battlefield. And now Bathsheba is his wife. But it was at a great cost. And David knew it was a loss. But a loss of their child together as well. But not just a loss of one child. David had lost several children. Some had died, some had ran away, and some of them he had abolished them from Jerusalem. One of them in particular, he had exiled out of the country. David had experienced great losses by this time in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But at a time like this, the worst thing of all happened to David And it was that son who he had exiled out of the nation and with his counselors had decided, with the advice of his counselors, he had decided to listen to them and welcome Absalom back into the country, but not into Jerusalem and not into his presence. That face-to-face meeting would still be quite a ways off. But at a time like this, Absalom revolts. He leads a revolution that divides a nation. And Absalom gathers an army, declares himself king, and lays siege to Jerusalem in order to kill one man. To do away with his father, David. Let's look in 2 Samuel chapter 15. In chapter 15, 
verse 14, it says, Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him in verse 15. Your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. Verse 16 says, The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past David. In verse 30, it says, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot, a king without shoes, weeping up Mount Olives. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. Jumping over to chapter 16, in verse 5, it picks up, As King David approached another village... A man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shemaiah, the son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He, he pitied David and all the king's officials with stones, though all, though all the troops and the special guards were on David's right and his left. As he crushed him, he said, get out you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose palace you've reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you are a murderer. This is coming from a man who would again be at the feet of King David and who would repent and ask for forgiveness and try to sell his allegiance back to King David. Then Absalom, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord, curse my Lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Everyone needs a good servant, a good loyal friend like that, right? But King David said, Why do, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? Then David said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me his covenant blessing instead of his curses today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shemaiah was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering, showering him with dirt. Listen to this verse. This is what we're getting to. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there, David refreshed himself. And there, David refreshed himself. That, ver that word in Hebrew for refreshed 
is closely related to the word soul and to the word for breath. And it's describing David not in a place because of a certain day of the week or an obligation to rules, but in a place himself that his soul needed breath. These days weren't the same as the days of exhaustion that he rode off the battlefield with some sense of accomplishment. These were days of depression, of defeat, of survival. Leaving the palace and the city so quickly that he didn't even have shoes on his feet. They didn't have adequate food or preparations made for the unexpected trip that hit them. But here David says, I'm taking a time out. I need the breath of God. My soul needs a breathing in and a breathing out. We're stopping here. And I need to be refreshed by God. If there was ever a man who was called by God, wouldn't you agree with me? It'd have to be David. Right up there with Abraham. Right up there with Jacob. Right up there with Paul. Right up there with Peter. Right up there with Jesus himself. God called a man of passion, of interest. A man who got up almost tired of sleeping each night, just wanting to get back after the things that God had called him to each day, to lead the kingdom, to expand the borders, to win, to take over God's enemies. In youth group this last week, the high school kids were just led by Taylor in a great look at Psalms 139, and David's pouring out his heart of worship and praise to his God. He's not asking for things. He's not wanting things. He's not bringing a list. He's just worshiping and praying to God. And yet in it, David finds himself so associating with God in his praise and his worship that he's taking upon God's enemies. And he's taking on the feelings that he thinks God may have of these people who despise God himself, who come against God himself, bloodthirsty, crooked, and evil men. David got up thirsting to take out such men. But these aren't the days that David's finding himself in at this time. It's his own son. It's his own flesh. He's saying, I've got to spend time with God. One thing I've got to do, I've got to spend time breathing in and breathing out God. It's a day that he may be asking himself questions like this. When did I take the wrong turn, God? What's happened to me? Where did that young man so alive with faith, so unswerving and unflinching, who never backed off, who never second-guessed, who never lost heart, where has he gone? Who am I, God? Where are you? But as David took breath and breathed in God and breathed out of his soul, the things that he was experiencing. David looked deep inside himself at all of his works, and he may have had thoughts like, is this what I bled for? Is this what I wept for, sacrificed for, and lost friends for? 
Is this all there is, God? And yet, in that time, because of God, because of the rest of God, because of the replenishing, the recreation, when we're at our weakest, when we've been depleted and we are lacking, God promises us, and our weaknesses will be made strong. In the rest of God, David knew he'd be strengthened, his soul would be revived by God's breath. Again, he didn't take Sabbath because of a certain day of the week that maybe could be traced to Saturday or Sunday. He took it because he knew of the strength of God that was in rest. But because he needs God, because he needed God, not because he needed something from God, he needed God himself. He wasn't asking In many of those psalms that God would rescue him, though God did, he chose to worship and to praise God and to get on God's side, not begging God to get on his side. He found the rest of God. Out of that rest with God, that breathing in and breathing out, David would remember and reconnect with his first love. He would remember his calling He couldn't forget his giftings. And so he would rise up and he returned to Jerusalem. And he defeated his and God's enemies. And he resumed kingship again. Because David took the time out. Because David chose to lean into God to stop. And to be replenished and strengthened by God. To stop and rest with God. And from it, he continued to lead Israel to his dying day. Listen to these couple of scriptures in Psalms 78, 72. The author writes, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. He led them. Much later, Peter preached or spoke this epitaph over King David when he said, for when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, his choice of words are, he fell asleep. He entered a deep kind of rest from God. How many of you, as we close, how many of you have ever heard of Brother Lawrence? Maybe just some of you in the room, I would expect. Brother Lawrence was a poor Frenchman who grew up in rural France in a very poor family, but he enlisted in the war at the time in the 1600s in France, and he writes of an experience that he had at this time of year in the fall when they were out of food and they were going through all the trials of war and battle and loneliness and He looked at some trees like we have out front, bare, naked, and barren trees. And those trees helped lead him to a convincing conviction of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as those trees are going to bud again, and they're going to blossom and leaf out and be beautiful again, he knew 
that God had actually created man, those trees and the Holy Spirit spoke to him, convincing him that God wanted to do the very thing in his own life. Brother Lawrence gave his life to Jesus Christ, and he served very mediocre, menial man, if you will, who did menial tasks in rural monastery in France. And yet, with the poor lifestyle that he grew up in and the lack of education and opportunities that many others had, he wrote brilliant works. Brilliance. Others still today see him as the spiritual giant he really was, mainly because of one simple practice that he's well known for. That is the practice of the presence of God, which is also the title of his best-known writing. Brother Lawrence, it says, and he encourages us to do, to God. Brother Lawrence believed that God was present everywhere all the time. That God simply needed to be noticed in order to be with him. That the reason many of us aren't with him is because we don't notice him. It's not because he's not there. We don't give him recognition. And Brother Lawrence preached and shared and wrote of his devotion to God in just simply continuing to say, hello, God. Through doing the dishes in the monastery, through cleaning up the slop of the pigs and the corrals, through menial tasks, he testified of his intimacy and his devotion to God just continued to come from, hello, God. Hello. Hello. Brother Lawrence's practices was just to keep saying hello to God. I want to conclude by asking you, would you do the same? Would you stop to practice presence with God? It doesn't matter as much what you're doing or what the rules are. What's expected of you? How comfortable you feel being vocal about it or how internal it is. I'm confident many of the things Brother Lawrence was doing and saying to God and hearing from God, many people didn't hear. And Brother Lawrence did his best to put words to what he experienced in his relationship with God. But I'm asking you, would you get into rest, into the rest of God's presence by continuing to say hello? This week, would you make it an ambition of yours? Would you make it a practice of yours to say hello, God? To enter his presence, to acknowledge that he's there, that he's around you, that he wants to be with you. And seriously, would we consider more deeply that there are just some things we need to cease doing. That there are instead some other things that we could embrace and make a higher priority. That it may influence the rest of our week. That it may rule over the rest of the week. I want to encourage you if, as we finish, if you would like to pray with someone, the prayer team will be available over here. To the side of the stage, they'd be glad to hear from you. Pray through whatever you may be.
bringing with you this morning, whatever distractions, whatever heartache, whatever issues. David had mighty men around him. And he shared his life experiences with those mighty men. And it gave them opportunity to be David's mighty men. 36 of them are described in scripture. I'm confident there's even more than that. In detail, there's 36 anyway. But it's because he shared with them what he was experiencing and what he was going through. And it created a deep, engaging relationship with them. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we are glad to hear of Brother Lawrence this morning. We're glad to look into the life of David. And I'm confident none of us sitting here can fully relate to David and what he was experiencing those days. But in our own ways, we can sit here relating to our need and our depletion, our own nature that needs to be replenished. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guide us. You would lead each one of us individually in the way, not in the list, but in the way that lets go of things, lets go of lists and ought tos and clings to to the things that we could do or get to do with and in you. God, we welcome you and we desire that this week would be different in Jesus' name. Amen.